You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Twitter permanently suspends DDoS secrets for violating its policy with respect to hacked material. DDoS Secrets explains its thinking with respect to blue leaks. A quick look at a hidden cobra hunt. Sino-Australian dispute over hacking may be moving into a trade war phase. Lessons on election management. What do cyber criminals watch when they binge watch? Joe Kerrigan explains the Ripple 20 vulnerabilities. Cybersecurity Canon Week continues with Joseph Men, author of Cult of the Dead Cow. And some notes on the most malware-infested movie and television fan communities. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. Twitter told ZDNet that the social network has permanently suspended the DDoS Secrets Twitter account, an account belonging to the group responsible for blue leaks, because DDoS Secrets violated Twitter's policy against distribution of hacked material. Wired reports texts from DDoS Secrets founder Emma Best, who explained in response to the observation that there's not a lot of illegal police activity on display in Blue Leaks. This shouldn't be surprising, she suggested. In DDoS Secrets' view, the value of the material is that it shows that legal and normal police conduct is itself problematic, especially in terms of its tone and the attitudes it expresses. Best attributes the attack to Anonymous, to Anonymous with a capital A, as she puts it, and that's always a bit of a hand-waving attribution, since Anonymous is more brand than organization, more like being a New England Patriots fan than being a New England Patriots player. But this does seem to be the biggest operation credibly attributed to the anarchist collective since the 2011 operations of what Wired calls the anonymous subgroup Antisec, who took and leaked law enforcement data in support of Occupy Wall Street. Best compares blue leaks to the work of Jeremy Hammond, currently still serving a 10-year sentence for his own hacktivism. A number of bloggers who've commented on blue leaks don't like what they see because what they see is a relatively indiscriminate revelation of names, addresses, phone numbers, license plates, banking information, allegations of crime, and so forth. Best told Wired that... Due to the size of the data set, we probably missed things. I wish we could have done more, but I'm pleased with what we did and that we continue to learn. Security Boulevard published a sample of reactions to Blue Leaks under the headline, Blue Leaks is a huge fail for Anonymous and DDoS secrets. They basically painted huge targets on an unfathomable amount of private citizens, said one representative comment. Unfathomable is an exaggeration. It's a finite database, after all, but... The number is certainly a big one. Security firm Reversing Labs offers a walk through the tools North Korea's Hidden Cobra, also known as the Lazarus Group, uses. 
The lessons the researchers draw is that it's possible to develop a rich picture of a threat actor from a starting point of publicly available intelligence. Channel News writes that Beijing is expected to retaliate for Canberra's strong hint that Chinese intelligence services are hacking targets in Australia on a large scale. The response is expected to take the form of tariffs and bans on certain Australian exports. The Washington Post calls Kentucky's primary elections yesterday a success story worthy of emulation. The three lessons the Post draws for the security and successful conduct of U.S. November elections from Kentucky's experience this week are the importance of bipartisan cooperation, lots of upfront planning, and, perhaps most important from the point of view of security, no hasty introduction of novel and unfamiliar voting machines. A lot of people during the lockdowns and stay-at-home plans most of us are living with during the pandemic have turned to indoor amusement to pass time, like watching far too much television, for example. And so, the use of streaming services has grown during the emergency. That's true not only in the world at large, but in the underworld, too. Digital Shadows has noticed an interesting development in the Anglophone cybercriminal platform Nulled, Its gangland proprietors have begun offering a live-streaming service, Nuldflix, to its members. The service offers television, blockbuster movies, and various memes. It comes with a chat feature through which members can exchange tips, comments, and so forth. Nuldflix is free to forum members, which probably means, first, that there's not a lot of money to be made from it, and second, that the proprietors are interested in building their brand and developing member loyalty. So what are they watching in the underworld? Maybe shows that provide a sympathetic take on the life of crime, you know, like Sons of Anarchy, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, or maybe even Dexter. But actually, no. And if you were hoping that the crooks would go for more improving shows like Oprah, Bassmasters, Bowling for Dollars, Teletubbies, reruns of the McLaughlin Group, well, you'd be off there as well. Judging from the small sample of chatter Digital Shadows shares, when the hoods aren't on the clock, they like to kick back with the same sort of stuff other kids do. Need anime manga suggestions, read one's request. A kid tried Sailor Moon. Space Battleship Yamato is pretty good, too. Some chats are open-ended. Need Netflix suggestion. Still others are invitations to critical engagement. Harry Potter versus The Lord of the Rings. A tough call, but we're pretty sure that Radagast and the Brown would win in a fight with Albus Dumbledore. Or Avatar 2 or Avengers Endgame, another one that's too close to call, but we will say that neither of them is up to the standard of Ant-Man, still less to the very high bar set by Ant-Man and Wasp. Digital Shadows points out that there are probably self-esteem issues at play here. Members of English-language criminal fora tend to be younger and less professional than the denizens of other languages' platforms. And Russian speakers, we're looking at you. So they can feel shunned and belittled by their more hardened colleagues. It's like Americans who join the French Foreign Legion. They've got a reputation as complainers and non-hackers. Come back and see us when you're ready to march or die, Yankee. So the underworld apparently has its tender sensibilities, too. And finally, some have wondered if particular television shows and movies are more dangerous than others. Researchers at security firm McAfee took a look at this question and concluded that, yes, yes indeed, some shows are riskier than others. They list the top ten titles that could lead you to a dangerous download. It's actually two top tens because they have a list for TV and one for movies. 
The dangerous TV shows include, in this order, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a police comedy procedural, Elite, Harlots, Letter Kenny, Poldark, Lost, You, Gentrified, Pen15, and Skins. The movies, also in order, Warrior, Zombieland, The Incredibles, Step Brothers, Bad Boys, the 2019 version of Aladdin, the 1994 Lion King, Swingers, Frozen 2, and The Invitation. A lot of the risk comes from pirate streaming services, so if you must binge on Poldark, do so from a legitimate source. And be careful of associated fan sites for these titles too, not to mention their appearance as fishbait. Why these titles? Popular culture is market intelligence for the criminal classes. They follow people's interests, the better to socially engineer their marks. You want Poldark? They got your Poldark right here. As for us, we're sticking to Bassmasters. We continue our week-long celebration of the winners of this year's Cybersecurity Canon Awards. In today's edition, CyberWire Chief Security Officer and Chief Analyst Rick Howard speaks with Joseph Men, author of Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. The CyberWire is celebrating the Cybersecurity Canon Project this week in its sixth year, identifying the must-read books for all network defenders. This week, the Canon Committee announced the Hall of Fame inductees for the 2019-2020 season, and I am pleased to have on the show one of the winning authors for his book called Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. Joe Min, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. So, Joe, why'd you write the book? Well, um, so I've been writing about cybersecurity for a long time. Uh, I, I wrote a book on it before, and it's, it, it's basically, it's a grim picture. And rather than write yet another book about, you know, why things are, are so hard, I wanted to try and point to solutions. And the Cult of the Dead Cow was a great vehicle for that because they go all the way back. They go back 35 years. You know, they, they were involved one way or another in a lot of the, the inflection points in security. They're in the coordinated disclosure debate, this is the advent of hacktivism or sort of morally driven hacking, which has come to mean many different things to different people. And then the fact that they contributed so much in so many different ways. So in the in the public sector, Mudge worked for DARPA uh, on cybersecurity. In the private sector, Dildog, Chris Rue, uh, founded uh, Vericode, and, which is a unicorn. And then in, in sort of the, the realm of like volunteers and, and, and hacktivists, they helped push Tor forward and many other things. So you can talk about all the big things that have happened in security through the lens of this one really interesting group that sort of had to keep uh, leveling up in terms of their moral capacity as as the challenges got bigger. So because of the pandemic, uh, this interview is a proxy for your acceptance speech of the Canon Hall of Fame Award. Any last words along those lines? Well, I would just, I guess I'd just like to say, first of all, I'm, I'm really honored. Um, I've been a fan of the, of the Cybersecurity Canyon Project, and I actually obliquely mentioned it in the book because it's really important. The shared knowledge and the institutional knowledge is something that's precious, and um, there needs to be common values as much as possible, a common vocabulary. We need to be talking about the same things in order to really make progress in something as complicated and daunting as as cybersecurity. You know, I, I think there's been a sort of a, an absence of discussion of, of moral 
issues in the field. But I think it's really important. Uh, and one of the important things that we can learn from the old school hackers is they all develop their own moral codes. You may not agree with, with many of them, but they at least put some work into it and they're willing to talk to their peers about that. And I think we need, we need to go back to that. The book is called Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World, and it is now officially inducted into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Joe, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Rick. Our thanks to Joseph Men for joining us. The book is Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, always great to have you back. Um, Hi, Dave. You know, an interesting story came by. This is from the folks at the security company JSOF. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, this is getting a lot of attention. They've, they've released uh, information about a, a collection of vulnerabilities they're calling Ripple 20. Uh, what's going on here? So what's happening is there's a company called Trek. T-R-E-C-K, that has something that is called a TCP IP stack. And if, for our, our less technical listeners, this is essentially the software that connects the operating system to the network. So if you look at a, uh, 
if you look at the layered model, the like the OSSI layer model or maybe the internet model, the five-layer model, there is a, a stack-like structure for sending data across a network. And at the very top of the stack is an application, and that takes its information and puts it into the next transport layer that goes down into, and, and it, it's all encapsulated in, inside of each other like uh, like the Russian babushka dolls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that when uh, when you send the big doll across the line, it goes to the other side and, and it gets taken apart all the way up to the other application it needs to talk to. And that's called the TCP IP stack. It's actually more than just TCP IP. It can, can include uh, some other protocols. Uh, like, for example, your web browser uses HTTP. That's just above the TCP part. And in between there, there may be, uh, there may be other, other protocols as well. This is an integral part of everything that's connected to the internet, to the IP network. Uh, it has to have some kind of TCP IP stack built into it or in the operating system. And what these guys have done is they found a set of 19 vulnerabilities in the Trek TCP IP stack. Now, this is really significant because some of these are critical. They can result in remote code execution, which means I can do anything I want on these uh, on these devices. But what's most significant about this is how broadly distributed this software is. It is in a lot of devices from a lot of different manufacturers. And the reason for that is if I want to start up a product and I, I want that product to be connected to the internet, why would I waste my time writing my own TCP IP stack when I can just go out and get one and license it from somebody else like Trek, right? right. It's, it's actually the, the, the internet's version of the uh, red Lego brick. That's uh, you know, two by four, the exactly. <laughs> standard. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's a basic building block that everybody has. Right. And, and furthermore, that might be the right thing to do from a security standpoint, right? Because if I don't, if I don't have the expertise in house to, to write a secure network stack, I'm going to, invariably write something with with vulnerabilities and defects in it. And that's that's what's happened here. I'm not saying that Trek doesn't have the expertise. They spend almost all their time doing this, I guess. There's a team that is devoted to this product. But any software product is going to have vulnerabilities in it. Trek is actually taking this seriously. They have a response on their website as to how they're doing this. But really, this is going to come down to these individual device manufacturers, uh, whether or not these device manufacturers have built their devices to be updatable. Yeah, uh, you know, let's say one of the, and I'll, I'm going to wage, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Dave. <laughs> I'm going to say they didn't do that. <laughs> the, the vast well, majority I mean, of these so, folks didn't do that. Yeah, I mean, this library goes back 20 years. Yeah, yeah, and is is used in all sorts of devices, including uh, industrial control systems, things like the embedded devices that right. don't get replaced for 20 years. So, right, th- uh, yeah, that's right, and and, and the problem with with updating this is you can't just go into a system, an industrial control system and say, we're going to upgrade the TCP IP stack on this device. There's a ton of testing you have to do and configuration management that you have to do before you do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Now there is some comfort here. I'm not sure if it's actually comfort that a lot of this, a lot of this stuff can't be exploited unless you're on the same network as the device. But if that device is connected to the internet and it's exposed to the internet, then it's, it's available for exploitation uh, and yeah. getting over that hurdle of getting into inside a network is not that significant of a uh, of a feat, right? I mean, we see mm-hmm. it happen every single day. The article here from JSOF says that there's one critical vulnerability in the DNS protocol that may potentially be exploitable by a sophisticated attacker over the internet from outside the network boundaries, even on devices that are not connected to the internet. So I don't know how this works. They're, they're going to do a demo of this uh, at, at Black Hat. 
I'm going, I, I, re I really want to see that. I'm kind of curious. It seems to me like they still either need a, a really sophisticated attacker who can compromise a DNS server that they know this device talks to, or again, they need to get inside the network and make a request, a DNS request to a server they control so they can send back the corrupted DNS packet that gives them code execution. That's how it works. Yeah. Uh, a DNS response, a, a bad DNS response has to be received. And you can't just send a DNS response to somebody. Uh, you have yeah. to, it has to be in response to a request. So this is one that uh, people should pay attention to and uh, take a closer look at. Yeah, this is, this is something that if, um, you know, if you, everybody should look at what, whatever Internet of Things devices they have on their, on their networks. If they can't be updated, it might be time to start moving those things towards disposal. And when it comes time to replace them, make sure that, uh, that these devices can be updated, have new firmware flashed to the devices with, uh, without causing too much overhead and consternation for the user. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining it's us. It's my pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.